Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Marianne Hardy, who has written The Culture of Women in Tech, an unsuitable job for a woman. So welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much. Um, this is, is a fantastic book, and um, it, it's a book that is really, you know, kind of essential reading uh, at the moment, not just because tech um, is having this like incredible um, sort of importance and influence during our uh, collective lockdown lives, mm. but also because you know it, it's against the backdrop of much wider questions about things like diversity in tech industries, questions about you know who writes algorithms that seem to uh, shape and determine our lives, um, and also I guess um, against the backdrop of various kind of political questions about how to regulate these industries as well. So it's it's an incredibly kind of important and, and well-timed book. And I guess the place to start with it is how come you, you were sort of interested in, in, in this area and what uh, kind of got you engaged with this question of uh, both, you know, the kind of like the tech industry as an industry, but also particularly uh, women within it? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I guess it's been woven through me um, forever. So um, a bit of background in terms of personal life. Um, My father brought me up. So we were a single parent household, which was kind of unusual, particularly in the 80s with a father bringing up a daughter. And he was very much um, kind of a pioneer in terms of playing around with technologies. We had a BBC computer that sat around the house and also having access to early Apple Mac technology because he was privileged to work with universities and research institutions that had funding to buy that for him. So sat around at home, we had lots of different you know, hardware and software that I was having the opportunity to play around with. And because this was the 80s, it was the beginning of um, structures and education reform within schools around computing. Um, and I decided early on that this was something I really enjoyed um, and really wanted to engage with long term and actually have a career out of as well. And I got to college, which was kind of late 1990s, no, mid 1990s. Um, and I put myself forward for the, at time, the only computer science um, course and program that they had there at A-level. Um, I was confident that I'd get on. I had the right grades and you know, my timetable was free for me to do it. Uh, and I remember walking through the um, classroom on the first day and having the tutor turn around and look at me and say, I think you're in the wrong room. And me say, no, definitely not. This is this is computer science. And I'm, I'm kind of I'm here to learn. So kind of where do we begin? And where do you want me to sit? Uh, and he said, no, I think we need to reconsider your um, position in this class. And I was a bit confused. So sort of let myself get turfed out and went to see my my personal tutor and say, have have I done something wrong? Is what's what's going on? Have I got a timetable clash? Um, and had a bit of a conversation. And they said, look, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll sort this out for you. So turned up the next week 
and was shooed out the classroom again and, and, and told, actually, your classroom is further down the corridor on the left. So I walked down the corridor on the left and walked into what was essentially a course for um, secretarial skills. So we were using computers at that time to learn how to do letterheads, to learn how to do typeheads, to modify um, very early um, office uh, documents in terms of, you know, good computational secretarial skills, touch typing and the like, but not the computer science I wanted to do. Um, And I asked my tutor why this was the case and how I've been ditched out the class. And they said, well, what we've had from the tutor is that this is a class where we provide training and learning and education, um, but it's a skill set that young girls, quote, like yourself, um, do not require. So we've put you in a more appropriate um, set of learning activities. And I guess the combination of my dad's enthusiasm for technology in the home, because we were very privileged to have it in the household, um, and the combination of kind of the kickback uh, in terms of education and someone saying, no, you can't do that because you're a girl, really stuck with me. I went on to do English literature at, at university and out of that ended up doing a women's studies master's and then a sociology PhD. And through my postgraduate studies, got really interested in how people sustain um, interactions online. So put simply, this was the early 2000s, so we're predating Facebook and social media, how social capital emerged in online spaces and what people did to modify their identities online to sustain those connections. Uh, And because this was kind of kicking around the same era um, as Second Life, and we were coming out of the... um, the chat rooms and the cyberspace culture of the, of the late 1990s, something really interesting was happening in terms of how we build and form relationships online. At the same time that was happening on a research level, I was just in the right place at the right time to be considering um, different business models, different marketing opportunities um, around the internet, around e-marketing, and what was the very early stages of social media. And I hooked in a couple of big clients who were financial institutions, they were banks based in the UK, who got concerns that they had customers and clients who were using social media platforms and wanted to know how they could market new financial products to them. So I started I started to do a bit of consulting on the sly um, in terms of in parallel with my with my postgraduate work. Out of that consulting, I was um, getting involved with local um, tech groups. So um, different spaces such as um, local networks in Leeds. So I'm based in the northeast of England. There wasn't much going on in York. So I had to go to Leeds, had to go to Newcastle. There was a bit more going on in London. So I'd come down to London every other week and started getting involved with those kinds of uh, different tech networks that were starting to be hosted. Uh, I had sponsors from, um, you know, big, well-known tech um, ambassadors such as, you know, O'Reilly. Uh, Thinking Digital was just starting to become um, a thing in the north. Um, and again, TED Talks were starting to emerge. And what was happening out of those stages and those different platforms was a real need um, for women speakers um, and women participants. Um, and there was sort of talk behind the scenes of how this was a very sort of male dominated, not only industry, but set of perspectives, and in particular, the culture around it, 
so some of the expectations about how you could think and feel about the kinds of tech work that you could get into. Uh, it was unlikely, if you're a woman at these tech events, that you were going to be considered that you were an engineer. Much more likely you were going to be considered that you were in PR or marketing. And so it was kind of the culmination of all those things that got me interested in women in tech. One, because I self-identified as one. And two, because I've been told, no, you simply can't do that because of your gender. Um, and I could get sweary now and tell you how much that annoyed yeah. me, but I won't. <laughs> I mean, part of me wishes I could like feign some kind of surprise at what you. <laughs> so you do I. But you know, the, the, it's ironic. I mean, the, the book kind of engages with, with, with this as well. You know mm. that um, part of the label women in tech is um, is a partial reflection of the idea that this is a known kind of issue and a known problem. And I mean. I, a couple of years ago, I was lucky enough to have Mar Hicks on the podcast. Oh, they were talking yeah. about uh, the historical contingency of this uh, construction of of women's relationship to tech, and you know the shift from being engineers to to secretarial work. You know, which is a deliberate kind of um, set of choices and set of stories, uh, often by very you know powerful senior uh, men within institutions. And I guess this kind of um, contingency and almost that kind of uh, sense of knowing there's there's a problem already is there in this label, women in tech. And one of the things that I think is really important is to unpack that um, and, and hear a bit more about what that term, I suppose, means, what it does, but also what its its limits are. Yeah, very much so. Um, it's hard because on the one hand, I really self-identify with the label women in tech and it's such a good shortcut to kind of get to the, the core of what we're talking about in terms of how we're reforming identity work and what's happening at the level of sexism and misogyny in, in the culture um, of, of technology and within the tech industry itself. But what is problematic with the label is that this allows the industry um, to have a shortcut to sort of mending or remedying the problem. And we're labelling women in tech, and that's the label. Then we're also labelling women as the problem too, because what part of what I argue in the book is that we're almost putting a target on women's back in terms of, well, there we go, we've identified who you are and what you do, so you're in tech um so the women and the in tech part is brought together um so the reform is is up to you to to safeguard and to put in place and to initiate and to sustain uh and and in doing so you you can be the remedy to your own problem if you like and that is just so unhelpful and so frustrating and doesn't reflect properly the concerns that go and cut right across the tech tech industry regardless of gender um you know men are equally concerned about the iterative um subjugation of women um, in the tech industry are equally concerned about how they're held back in terms of career pathways are equally concerned about challenges that face uh, individuals because of their gender and what was interesting had I come out of the book um, because I spoke to women and men in the tech industry was also men's concerns around the lack of equality in terms of theirs rights for example wanting equal parental leave and how that was seen um, not as something that they felt that they could call upon um, with any particular voice or very loudly because that was still seen as women's work. 
of course, some of the opposite is true too. So I had lots of reports from men in the study um, who brought their kids into work. And that was seen as a very kind of positive set of things to be doing. And when women did the same thing, they felt that that wasn't received in such a positive way. uh, And in some cases impacted quite negatively uh, in terms of their relationships um, with their work colleagues. Oh, and that's my four-year-old coming in. (laughs) Perfect timing. Exactly, perfect timing. Uh, so in terms of the use of the women in tech label, it's it's a very charged term and pretending it's something that's neutral and solves the problem is part of the problem itself. Um, it's been popularised amongst women in tech groups because you need to label the thing to acknowledge that there is a problem there. But in labelling themselves in such a way, um, they've sort of created another set of problems around that label, if you see what I mean. Um, So where initially it was seen by women in tech groups to advocate and advance the status of women in the industry, it's also been amplified by the popular media to almost speculate and in some places poke fun um, at women's place in tech. Um, and you can see that across various popular press articles in terms of where the women in tech label sits, for example, against the Me Too movement um, of recent times and how that's actually come out quite negatively. The other place that the women in tech label occupies quite a lot of time and space is in government and industry reports, helping to point out the problem. But again, we're still labelling the problem women in tech. What we're not labelling the problem is you know, the culture of tech or the lack of equality in tech or the lack of diversity in tech. So if that became the label, then we'd actually tackle, you know, the elephant in the room um, and have a commitment to access and participation uh, and proper career support uh, across science and technology, which is what we need. Um, So on the one hand, we have a label that pivots around the identity of women um, and the lack of diversity and equality in tech. But the naming of that problem is very gendered and it remains woman. Um, and that doesn't get us any further, unfortunately. I mean, it, it's an issue that you see uh, across a lot of professional domains, mm. uh, law, accountancy, um, parts of particular bits of medicine. You see it in film and TV really, really strongly, um, you know, bit, bits of the kind of music industry too. And, and one of the things that um, makes the book distinctive and I think has a particular um, kind of slightly different uh, perspective um, on these issues is this spatial dimension that the book uh, interrogates. And I, and I was really struck actually by the way that um, lots of the discussions around things like equality and diversity in institutions talks about careers and we're going to talk about that a bit later because the book um, obviously engages with that. But they don't tend to have this, I guess, kind of, you know, almost sort of material, spatial uh, perspective. And, and I was struck by one, one of the phrases you use um, in the middle of the book around the idea of there being kind of dominant conditions of, of space uh, that create these kind of gendered boundaries within the places you've uh, been studying. You know, we're kind of familiar with the idea of sort of tech hubs or tech clusters, mm. um, but we're less familiar with how they might be you know, deeply kind of gendered spaces. Um, and I think that's a really uh, important uh, part of your analysis to, to spend some time thinking about. It was a really interesting part of, of the conditions of the research as well. So it's fairly obvious to anyone, as soon as I walk through the door 
of a tech hub, um, be it a co-working space or a proper tech office in terms of an organization or commercial company, that obviously I'm a woman. And there are so many different kind of gendered parameters kind of beaming off that as well. And, and what I found when I stepped into these spaces, and I spent quite a lot of time because I was very privileged to be able to spend time in them sort of doing um, observational, almost uh, ethnographic work, um, looking at how workers use the space, what was happening in terms of degrees of interaction and what was happening in terms of formal work meetings, that there were very different and very hierarchical patternings of interactions um, that characterized the workspaces and inscribed norms and social processes that would have been quite difficult to capture just had I gone in and just done interviews and just done focus groups and simply beamed in and out. So spending times within different tech clusters, and I spent time in, in, in various different spaces in the UK, in the US, and also managed to get some data um, from China as well, um, and a little bit of data from Taiwan, um, was to look at this kind of the gender spatial boundaries um, that reflected the direct experiences of marginalization that women felt in these spaces. And a really good example was within one of the tech city organizations that I spent time in was structured in a very tall building. So we're on a we're on a basically we're on a science site. Um, and this is sort of a grey concrete building, and you go in, and the middle floor is sort of a reception area that looks very um, open and lots of glass, uh, floor to ceiling, and lots of light and lots of plants everywhere, and looks very innovative and interactive and you know sparky. Um, and in the main reception area, it is all women working there. Um, and as I was taken up and led to the senior management sort of hub at the top of the building, um, it is only male workers on those floors. Um, now, I was allowed to sort of wander around that building and spend some time going on all floors and spend some time in the, in the cafeteria and the canteen spaces and, and sort of just have a sense of what was happening in terms of uh, meetings, but also um, just um, informal interactions. And as you go down, and particularly as you go into the basement area, so the basement area was was the training, was the rookie area. I'm using quotation marks on my fingers. You can't see that, though. Uh, so in the rookie training area, there weren't any windows um, in those rooms, and it was predominantly occupied by um, young women um, who were there as interns, so weren't being paid for their work. Um were there, I spoke to one woman who thought that she was there as an intern trainee um, to join a top tech company as a software engineer. And all, all that she had been doing in her three months there was admin work, admin support work, photocopying or copying files or indexing files, um, everything that you'd expect, um, you know, a secretarial or administrator role to be fulfilled as. Nothing wrong with that, but that isn't what she wanted and that isn't the kind of formal um, space that she wanted to occupy within a tech company. Um, and she'd requested time and again uh, for extra training and support uh, within this company to enable her to get into the, the career stream that she wanted and kept getting pushed back. So lack of experience or lack of mentorship or lack of time or lack of resource within the company. Um, and this was common actually across the board um, within tech clusters, whether it was in the UK, um, in the US or East Asia, wherever I was, the same set of challenges kept coming up. 
uh, in terms of the amount of time uh, and the amount of investment, but particularly the, the space that women were allowed to take up and where they were allowed to take up was a significant factor in how they felt ostracized from the tech industry. And that was very difficult and challenging for them to overcome. Other issues around space included um, gendered elements in terms of um, men's only clubs. These were predominantly based in the US, so particularly around Silicon Alley in New York and Silicon Valley uh, in California. And what was happening in there was there was some high level, um, large tech investment companies uh, and clubs that you could join um, that form part of a larger urban tech culture, if you like. Um, so if you if you were considered someone who was a high roller, so you had a lot of money and a lot of experience in running tech companies, you were very likely to be a member of some of these tech clubs. But the membership was predominantly men. Um, and if you were a woman and wanted to get into the same space, you had to be sponsored or receive a word of mouth invitation um, from someone who was already on the board of these clubs, which again, they were all men. Um, so there's quite a lot of problems and quite a lot of challenges to overcome, not only in the formal workplaces in terms of the office space, but the informal workspaces that tech workers spend their leisure time in, um, spend their time networking, um, spend their time simply socialising. And that's highly problematic. And this plays out really directly in, in terms of careers. Um, and, you know, those um, access to these, you know, closed spaces or, you know, the spatial organisation of, of buildings um, maps on to how women network and how they build, you know, social capital mm-hmm. or, you know, how they're able to kind of find work, uh, how they get recruited um, and, you know, how they get um, essentially sort of blocked from taking on leadership uh, roles. And these three maybe moments or stages of career form the, the later part of the book. And as I say, you know, directly connect to that um, spatial division of labour. Um, and I wonder if you could sort of talk me through maybe the, the three points that you think are, are crucial here about, you know, getting in, developing networks and then not kind of getting on. Yeah, um, it was really interesting to speak um, to mixed groups of tech workers, actually. So what I did in the end was run some focus groups um, that had equal numbers of men and women. And what we talked about was, OK, you're going forward in your career. How would you go about finding sort of the next level up in terms of your job? Um, And candidates, participants talked about, you know, using recruitment websites, um, of which um, are many numerous um, and have, you know, a worldwide uh, platform to go on. Um, But what we found really interesting in terms of what would make those participants actually apply for the next level up job um, was to do with the language and the terminology used within the job description itself. And there's been quite a lot um, of other studies involved with looking at the language of job adverts and in particular looking at the contrast in terms of ideal candidate type um, and kind of the low level league jobs, particularly around digital marketing compared with software engineering jobs. Um, just around the language used in terms of skills and knowledge, responsibilities, the job role, and what are behavioural traits. And these are incredible 
incredibly gendered. Um, and I spent quite a lot of time of trying to pull out what were the expectations at the candidate level and what was being presented to them in terms of the job descriptions and found um, that women time and again did not apply for job roles, which they were completely fine in terms of experience and level of responsibility to take on, but just the terminology and the language used uh, within the job advertisements completely put them off. So an example of this would be um, using a behavioural term such as career-driven or um, embraces change or something like discretion. And those were triggers, particularly for women, to interpret that this was going to be work that would take them away and outside or make demands on them um, to be away from their family, um, wouldn't allow them any flexibility um, and would require them to work in, and I'm borrowing the words of my participants here, masculine ways, so quite confrontational ways that they didn't feel comfortable with. What women were looking for were jobs that offered flexibility um, and jobs that allowed them to be able to see themselves in that role before they applied to it. Um, So, yes, they agreed that they had a strong commitment to work ethic, but also that they felt that they could contribute um, to the ethos of the company, if you like, uh, in terms of bringing other women into um, those kinds of workspaces, but also looking to the kinds of roles that women who already work for that company already had. So were there lots of women in senior management roles? Were they mostly mid-management? Or were they working in um, sort of low-level, entry-level positions and not getting any further because that was a red alert uh, for lots of the women that I spoke to? There were really clear contrasts in what women and men candidates were looking for in terms of how they identified the jobs that they went for. Typically, and we're dealing with broad brushstrokes now, okay, typically the male candidates um, first identify their ideal job by salary. So a typical response would be, I'd like to earn, you know, a substantial amount of money. What, again, what the women were looking for were ways that they could identify with the job and invest their time and, for want of a better way of putting it, their emotional labor into, into a position that they felt passionate about. It wasn't just work for them. Um, It became something more than just, you know, performance-driven culture or more about the money, but ways that they could integrate it into their life and have a better lifestyle for themselves and their family. Um, So in the past, we've had research talk about soft and hard skills in terms of tech workers. So your hard skills would be kind of traditional engineering roles, coding roles, soft skills, much more related to a communication post. So for example, a social media manager manager or an e-marketing director, something like that, to do with communication. And you can already see before you've even got past the job title uh, and the indexing of the salary where this is going to be aimed at in terms of a switch of gender. Um, It's much less likely if you're looking at a social media manager with good communication skills that has flexible working with it, that is lowly ranked in terms of salary, that you're going to get lots of men applying to it. Um, you're not. Um, you're going to get much more women. And this is really disrupting the career trajectory 
in terms of tech jobs and the kinds of careers that women in particular feel that they can get into and also sustain, feel that they can level up into. Um, because we're relying on a set um, of job descriptions that are heavily loaded in terms of the, te- the gendered terminology and the language that they're using, but also heavily loaded in the expectations of the workers going into that job. So they're expected to work weekends, expected to work late, expected to network in the evenings and early in the morning, which makes it impossible if you've got a caring role to go into into those kinds of roles or to see yourself into those kinds of roles. So, of course, you're not going to get women applying, um, regardless of whether they can fulfill the expectations and the requirements and the skill sets that are are there in the job description. Um, so we've got a lot to fix in terms of the culture of tech, which is why my pun on the title is that it's an unsuitable job for a woman, because that is the feeling amongst many women working in the sector. Not all, but many. And, and it's a fairly, you know, sort of rational and, and accurate uh, assessment, which is both, you know, kind of depressing and disappointing, mm-hmm. um, but also prompts the question of, uh, of change and I mean you know w- within what what you've been describing there are really obvious um, kind of practical steps organizations can take some organizations do engage with these about you know how you advertise jobs the way you organize offices you know the way you do your your kind of um, networking and, and decision making uh, strategies but one of the things the book is keen to do is um, I, I suppose engage with and, and then also um, ambivalently celebrate, if that's a, a concept, um, ideas about kind of community building and forms of, of activism, going back actually to what you were saying about your initial early engagements with um, groupings around uh, the tech industry. So I, I suppose as a sort of concluding moment for the book, there is this question about how can things be changed and, and what, you know, what could sort of, activism um offer us uh, as well as expecting organizations to reform i was really lucky when i was writing the book because i was struggling when i was doing this research to feel any sense of kind of positivity coming out of this it did feel a bit doom and gloom and i knew that wasn't the case i knew actually on the ground there were some really interesting and critical things happening uh, and alongside the march of, of, of the research and engaging with different tech communities around the world were these emerging global movements. Uh, so, for example, the hashtag Everyday Sexism and hashtag Me Too. And they were offering the opportunity for new forms of resistance and strategies to reform gender difference at a level that was dealing directly with misogyny and sexism um, in very high level um, ways. And that reflected hard in parallel ways uh, within the tech community. It really resonated uh, as a form of digital consciousness raising, um, particularly against um, some of the participants I was speaking to in China. So a bit of background, so you won't know this if you haven't read the book, but uh, in the middle of my research, I was pregnant and couldn't travel anymore. So my idea to go and spend time 
uh, face-to-face uh, with women in China working in the tech industry didn't work. So I was now relying on video conferencing and Zooming and everything that we're now doing as, as remote work that feels normal, but at the time felt like I was being a bit of a pioneer, to be honest. Um, so whilst I was, I was pregnant uh, and still carrying on with the research, I was talking to um, women in the tech industry over uh, in China and in Taiwan, and they faced some very real challenges around the place of women, not only within industry and the sector, but also within their culture. Um, And time and time again, they spoke about being pioneers or facing a new frontier uh, in terms of where they were going with their career and how they felt they were prioritizing their professional life over and above any kind of family responsibilities that were expected on them. Now, those kinds of issues came out in the UK and the US, but not as strongly. And when Me Too and everyday sexism, but particularly the Me Too movement kind of came into fruition, there was a lot of self-relating to um, the experiences and classifications um, of women looking to um, deepen their rights, to embrace change, to have a moment to feel confident to speak out and to come together as well, to start questioning men's standards um, collectively together, particularly within the tech industry. And that's something that hasn't happened before. Um, there's some amazing papers coming out of China around empowerment and around the Me Too movement, which I strongly encourage your uh, listeners to track down and to read. And what I found through the research as well was that there was um, a critical moment in time in terms of how young women in particular felt conditioned by the expectations on them um, because of masculine tech culture um, and what was happening in terms of their positive embrace or women's activism going beyond, you know, joining a group on Facebook, but actually to be able to do something about it, to enable them to come together and talk about ways of changing things, not to man bash, not to turn the tables and be sexist back at men, but to really change things for better and to really start to tackle some of the dynamics of masculine tech culture and to reconstitute this as more of an equal discourse Um, that runs through current business and government structures uh, and even social interactions. So kind of this is changing the world stuff, right? This is where I start to feel really positive about the book. So what we're questioning here are different patterns patterns of power relations, essentially. Um, And a lot of that owes much to um, the activism and digital movements that have been trending on social media and in particular Twitter. And some of that means that we can start to question and directly question what's happening at the point of, for example, a really simple one to start changing things in terms of the culture of tech is looking at recruitment in the tech industry. So simply engaging, if the company's big enough, HR properly. So looking at job advertisements and the language, looking at the salary ranges and thinking, is this appropriate? Looking at the opportunities for flexible working and naming that on the job description. In academia, we're typically bad at this kind of thing. So we think like a little note at the end saying we particularly welcome recruitment from um, candidates um, who may be, for example, um, from a less diverse background. Um, you know, we welcome candidates who have um, a particular disability, so on and so forth. That isn't enough in terms of changing the tone of those kinds of recruitment adverts. What we've got to do is change kind of the whole 
ethos of how that's structured through an organization. I spent some time talking um, to um, the um, the digital offices uh, in government over here at the cabinet office in the UK, um, and they were struggling with trying to recruit and sustain and keep um, women in high-level management positions within their tech um, roles. Um, and what they hadn't done was get a buy-in from senior management or had any training for senior managers to appreciate some of the gender inequalities and hierarchies and practices that were happening within that organization. They were doing lots of gender inequality and diversity training um, amongst uh, new recruits and very junior colleagues. Everyone was getting lots of training around that in terms of training, promotion and leadership. But there wasn't any equivalent training for senior management teams, people right at the top, directors, CEOs. So if we're going to change the world and be truly inclusive within the tech sector, we've got to go further than just offering online training courses about diversity, but to actually have buy-in and change and investment, so time and resource, from the people who actually make the decisions, CEOs, directors, so on and so forth. And in the main, at the moment, those positions are held predominantly by men. Um, So we need buy-in from the top, we need a restructuring from the bottom, um, and we need to start to embrace the pace of change um, that is being called for um, through movements and organisations such as Everyday Sexism and Me Too. And I think if we get all that going together, which is a lot to ask, then that is going to be an effective way that we can truly change the culture of tech and have equality across the board. And obviously the book is, a, is an important contribution to this. In, in terms of your, your own uh, kind of academic work, is that sort of project for change uh, where you're going to be focusing? Um, I mean, you mentioned actually, you know, that, that kind of moment of trying to highlight um, the positive things that are happening, um, which again, you know, I think is an important uh, contribution to the academic literature, which can sometimes be, you know, overly sort of structural and, and slightly overly uh, pessimistic? Um, or are you thinking in terms of doing a completely different um, set of, uh, of research on a different topic? A bit of both. So immediately after I finished the book, um, I kind of wanted to get some distance from it to let it sit, to see what the reaction would be. Um, and to, to draw in, uh, if you like, on, on some of the kind of the the heavy drumming I've been doing around how we confront the dominance of masculine tech culture and seeing how that's seeded. Um, And I think it's important to kind of let those ideas breathe. They're not necessarily new in terms of what we're identifying as um, significant barriers, but they are new in terms of how we understand gendered experiences and in particular how those are disguised within the tech industry um, in ways that feels at times very tokenistic in terms of how the women in tech label is banded around in particular. Um, and I felt certainly when I was writing the book quite angry about that. And again, I needed to kind of take a step back and <laughs> get less angry. Um, however, as linked research to the women in tech research, if you like, um, I started looking at remote work and remote workers because what I found in writing the book was where there was much more equality within the tech sector was where there was the opportunity for workers to have one flexible working conditions, but also to be working from home a lot more. 
And that was where there seemed to be um, a much flatter curve in terms of difference between women's and men's experiences, uh, in terms of their career advancement, in terms of their salary level, in terms of their expectations about where they were going as well. Um, And so I started that research um, at the beginning of 2019. Um, And since then, we've now had this global pandemic. So now everyone is working from home. So what I've got now is I've got this interesting capture um, of research that is kind of the before the pandemic, the during, and I hope to hope to continue with this afterwards in terms of what goes back to, to whatever we do is the new normal. Um, and alongside that, because I'm an inter- interdisciplinary scholar, so I, I like looking not only at the tech industry itself, but also tech culture. So what we're using predominantly um, to make our lives better, easier uh, with regards to technology. So I spent a lot of time looking at um, mHealth um, data, so self-tracking technology. So if you wear a Fitbit, if you have a Garmin, if you use Strava, um, whatever sleep tracking device that you're, you're involved with. Um, I'm also looking in those areas to look at um, different forms of identity capitalism, to understand how the emergence of different ways of interacting, of labelling ourselves, of investing in ourselves and what we're doing to make ourselves healthier and better as a society, Um, whether it's the culture of the tech industry or on a more individual level or even at a household level and a family level.